Hey, everybody, this is Harvey Sluggo Wasserman with you for the first Green Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition Zoom meeting of 2024. We are thrilled to have you all with us, and we are especially thrilled to have uh, the great Andrea Miller with Ray McClendon. We are going to uh, uh, devote the first part uh, and the better part of the uh, 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 gathering today to laying out a strategy for surviving 2024 with grassroots organizing. And we're going to uh, let the, the great masters of grassroots organizing, uh, Andrea Miller of the Center for Common Ground, Ray, Ray uh, uh, McClendon from Communities United, to uh, really lay out in great detail how we're going to survive 2024 and establish grassroots campaigning in a way that will uh, uh, tip the balance for our democracy in 2024. Later, uh, we will have uh, uh, Wendy Lederman, who's with us, is going to talk to us about the abortion issue. Steve um, um, Caruso is going to guide us through the horrendous nightmare that is Ohio uh, at this point in time. And we're also going to talk later with the great Paul Guype uh, about uh, renewable energy. But uh, And I will say that immediately after uh, tonight's uh, grief call, we will go to the Michigan-Wisconsin uh, National Championship game, which will be uh, announced by Dr. Nancy Naparco, who uh, was at the playoff game at the Rose Bowl. So um, uh, all our priorities are in order here. Uh, we are starting off with 31 people. It is um, uh, the 163rd Green Grassroots Emergency Election Protection. We have great people with us. Paul Grossman's with us, Milo Reason, Tatanka Bricka, uh, so many other superstars here on the uh, uh, progressive democracy side. Uh, uh, Cynthia Papermaster from Code Pink, uh, Lynn Cherry, one of the great children's book writers uh, in our history, the author of uh, The Great Kapok Tree, is with us, Ron Leonard, a major figure in the renewable energy. And of course, we have Mike Hirsch, our, our erstwhile co-host and co-convener. So this is a great, great guy. Oh, Joel Siegel is with us, um, uh, godfather of the uh, Affordable Care Act. Uh, it is really great to have everybody with us. And we are, this is going to be a, uh, Ogan Feinerman as well. John Steiner is with us too. And we want to get our best, best wishes to um, uh, Camilla Reese, who's in the hospital. Um, uh, recovering from some health issues. So somebody, we're getting some scratchiness in the background there. Um, but we, this is going to be a an event where, to begin with, where we really lay out the strategy. We're going to we're going to use these videos uh, through the year to help organize uh, with our with instruction. And somebody's got uh, some extraneous noise um, with uh, uh, Ray and and Andrea. Uh, we will transcribe what they say, and I will use it uh, for to lay out a, a brief um, uh, handbook uh, for grassroots organizing, which will give us guidance uh, through the coming uh, uh, God help us year of 2024. Okay, so um, uh, with that, uh, I see Marta Steele as well. With that, I'm going to uh, turn it over now uh, without interruption to Andrea Miller. Andrea, if you can start with the uh, the how-tos of what we're going to do with grassroots organizing, and then give us the state-by-state, blow-by-blow uh, as you see it. And then Ray McClendon will pile on, and we will uh, lay out a, a document for the ages. Uh, but we do have some extraneous noise, if we can kill that experience. Okay, we good? 
I think we're good. And thank you very, very much, Harvey. All right. Now, I actually brought a presentation for you. So I am going to share that right now so that there will be something that people can look at, follow along. So I call this voter suppression 2024. And the other side of it is what we can do to fight it because we are going to need to fight it with organizing. We're going to need to fight it with some good old citizen advocacy. And there's going to just be a lot of plain, honest, hard work we're going to have to do in the street. So um, our challenge, people on the right wing are continuing to create enthusiasm with the idea of the big lie, and they are getting their voters excited. Federal legislation protecting voting rights has failed, and passage looks very doubtful in the U.S. House. There's a lack of enthusiasm among progressive activists. There is concern about the Democratic Party digital infrastructure, which is no longer American-owned. The right wing is investing in community centers in BIPOC communities. We have democracy centers. They have community centers. Now, federal legislation. These are things we are going to need to watch and potentially actively fight. There is a bill to overturn the National Voter Registration Act of 1993. There are a couple of bills that have been introduced requiring proof of citizenship to register to vote. Um, while we're all familiar with the progressive bill for D.C. statehood, there is a bill in Congress to return Washington, D.C. to the state of Maryland, which doesn't want it. Um, there is legislation to prohibit agencies from having agreements with nonprofits for voter registration and voter mobilization effort. There are bills to require proof of citizenship in order to vote by mail. And there is a move to eliminate reliance on the U.S. Postal Service for address verification. So that's what's going on at the federal level. Now, one of the challenges that we are seeing in southern states, and I guarantee you're going to see it in anything that is considered a swing state, is you have activists who are going to county registrars and they are challenging voter registrations using the true to vote the true the vote list saying oh these people are not entitled to vote in the US the other thing that we know we're going to be seeing a lot in 2024 southern states and then also in um I'm going to say our swing states targeting of election officials, both at work and also at home.
And finally, something very, very important that we as activists really need to do. We need to change our language around voter registration because otherwise we will miss the people who need and they need to know. All right, now I'm addressing some of the interesting, more simplistic ones. NGP Van, if you've ever done any work with the Democratic Party, you know that NGP Van is their voter file. Now, the problem is in 2021, NGP Van was sold to Apex Partners, which is a British company. Now, Apex Partners peddled NGP Van again in late 2022, and the Saudis bought it. So imagine the American voter file infrastructure used by one of the major parties is actually owned by the Saudi. Yikes. Maybe it's just me. Now, over at Center for Common Ground, we use PDI because, number one, we like phone numbers that work. We like addresses where the people really live there. And it happens to be American-owned. Now, um, the courts have not been our friend either. So I think most people are aware that the Eighth Circuit Court ruled that private plaintiffs cannot sue under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So again, remember that very, very first big case that we won that started out as Allen versus Milligan. Um, Evan Milligan was basically a private plaintiff. He was not a county or a state election official. So the states that are impacted by this are Arkansas, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota. Those are the states that are under the Eighth Circuit. And this case goes very much against Allen versus Milliken and the decision of the Fifth Circuit. Now, states have not exactly been with us either. In 2023, 325 restrictive laws were introduced, and 17 of those laws have passed in 14 states. Now, photo ID, seven states now or still have strict photo ID laws. North Carolina, which previously did not have photo ID laws, now they do. There were 81 laws introduced in 23 states that allowed some form of interference with election law. We are still dealing with felony disenfranchisement. We are still dealing with voter purges, which mainly impact BIPOC voters that are being disguised as, quote, file maintenance. And we are also looking at legislation. We have legislation in Alabama that prohibit voter assistance. And in that backdrop, this is where 
were being impacted. Now, most of the states or all of the states in the Eighth Circuit, those are not the states where we work. When you look at this map, you will notice that a number of the states that are in this map, North Carolina, Florida, Texas, we have work in those states. So what states are doing is they are consolidating and closing polling places. They are banning the use of drop boxes. They are now not counting same-day registration ballots, even though the states have same-day registration. They want photo ID with a vote-by-mail application, and anybody say identity theft on that one. They want to shorten the time to return your ballot by mail. And um, Ohio was the poster child for this one. They want to make it harder for citizens to initiate ballot measure. Now, in Texas, the state that just loves voters. Harris County, which is the biggest county in Texas, the Secretary of State now has totally taken over all oversight of Harris County elections. My gosh, they had to take over those elections because they were letting all those Black and Hispanic people vote, and we certainly can't have that. The one in North Carolina is incredibly disturbing, maybe the most disturbing one of all. The North Carolina Board of Elections now has set up all counties so that it is an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, and there were, there were no rules or what do we do if there's a tie? So what happens if there is a tie? Now, we've got some very large counties in North Carolina, like Mecklenburg. So imagine the county board of elections, the Democrats and the Republicans cannot agree on the early voting location. Mecklenburg County would end up with one early voting location. That's going to be an interesting one to watch. Now, bills that we need will probably not pass in this current configuration of Congress. But again, important to know that they're there, important to know what they do, because if we do this right, we will change the way Congress looks. We still have not passed the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, otherwise known as the VRA. We just have not done that. And normally, all we've ever had to do since 1965 is reauthorize the Voting Rights Act. Well, in 2018-2017, we couldn't get that done. So what does it do? It establishes what the criteria is for determining what states and or counties and or cities must obtain pre-clearance before they can make changes to voting 
practice is. They got to get pre-approval from the Department of Justice or the district court before making legal change. So before, or what this would do is, if there have been in a 10-year period during the 25 previous years, 15 or more voting rights violations occurred in the state, 10 or more violations occurred, at least one, which was committed by the state itself, or three or more violations, then that is going to be subject to pre-clearance. Now, right now in the House, H.R. 14 has 250 House co-sponsors, which would be nearly enough to pass it. 218 is what is needed. However, the bill has not had a hearing in the House Judiciary Committee, and the Senate Companion Bill has not yet been introduced. We understand that Senate Companion Bill introduction is eminent. So we are going to be working on getting people to visit their senators in their local offices and get them to agree to co-sponsor the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. So that's a positive. Now, one of the states where we're going to be working in Virginia, a lot of things are going on in Virginia. Uh, felony disenfranchisement is still a thing in Virginia. Virginia is one of three lifetime felony disenfranchisement uh, states. It impacts more than 210,000 potential voters. The State Board of Elections in all 133 counties are controlled by a republic. What a lot of people didn't realize when we lost control of the governor's mansion is we were also going to lose control of the State Board of Elections and all of the county board. So there is no incentive on those boards to be at all progressive when it comes to voting rights. Now, Virginia has 45 days of early voting. However, there is no single nonpartisan place where you can go, not the State Board of Elections website, nowhere nonpartisan, where you can go and get all of the early voting locations, when they're open, where they're located, at one place. Now, the governor's pack produced secure your vote, but it says Republican all over it. So, Center for Common Ground, we actually built the early voting information for all 133 counties, and ours is nonparts. The governor of Virginia, according to our 1902 Constitution, controls restoration of rights, and basically he stopped automatically restoring rights. There were roughly 17,000 people who had formerly had their rights restored, where all of a sudden, as people were going to vote, they found out that their 
restoration had basically been removed and they were no longer registered to vote. And that was because due to a technical infraction, you missed the probation hearing, you missed payment of a fine. They took that and claimed it was a brand new felony and used that to unrestore people's voting rights and basically didn't tell them. People found out when they showed up to vote. Well, the governor immediately said, oh, that's not me. That's not my fault. Had nothing to do with that. But he also did very little to fix. So we will be working with a coalition. We also are working on a constitutional amendment on voting rights restoration to take it away from the power of one so um, there's a lot going on in Virginia. Now, in Virginia itself, I mentioned we've introduced SJ2 and HJ2, where we basically state that the Constitution of Virginia shall have the fundamental right to vote in the Commonwealth, and that such rights shall not be abridged by law except for persons who have been convicted of a felony and persons who have been adjudicated to lack the capacity to understand voting. A person who has been convicted of a felony shall not be entitled to vote during any period of incarceration. Now, this is key, and this is where Florida messed up. But upon release from incarceration for that felony and without Further action required of him, such person shall be invested with all political rights. So we are working very, very hard to get that change. Now, that is a constitutional amendment. We're going to need to pass it in this current legislative session, in the next legislative session, and then it would go out to the citizens of Virginia as a ballot initiative for them to say yay or nay. There is an additional lawsuit in Virginia on felony disenfranchisement that takes a different tack. My buddy Richard Walker has filed a suit that says when Virginia was readmitted to the Union after the Civil War, the condition of readmission was that Virginia would only be allowed to disenfranchise its citizens if they were convicted of crimes that were considered felonies during the enactment of the law. Now, in Virginia, most drug crimes are felonies because a lot of drug crimes are committed by black and brown people. So, of course, they need to be felonies right up there with murder. Virginia is also a three-strike state, so three misdemeanors is equal to a felony. So, this is an interesting suit. It is still going on. They said that the law firm group that was originally part of the case didn't have standing, but that the original individual plaintiffs did. So more on 
that at the federal level, we need the Democracy Restoration Act. And um, the number at the top is wrong. I'll correct this before I send this to you, Harvey. Uh, Senate Bill 1677, which would be a national upon release from prison, you have the ability to vote bill, has 25 co-sponsors. Our challenge is this bill is not going to pass in this legislative session, and Senator Cardin is retiring and not running for re-election. H.R. 4987 has 73 co-sponsors. So again, we have a way to go before we reach the magic number of 218. There are three competitive congressional races in Virginia since Virginia holds federal elections on even-numbered years, and we just did our state elections last year. So in CD2, that was Elaine Luria's old seat that is now held by Republican Jennifer Kiggins. Congressional District 7 is currently held by Abigail Spanberger, who will not be running for re-election because she will be running for the governor of Virginia in 2025. And CD10 currently held by Jennifer Wexton. Jennifer Wexton will not be running for re-election because she has a very serious illness. Now, I mentioned we need to change our language. This is something that everybody here can do. Because registrations are being challenged, voter registration, it is critical that we get voters in the habit of checking their registration status to make sure that it is still active. Because most other states do not have same-day voter registration, so that if you were to show up to vote and it turned out you weren't registered, you will simply not be able to vote in most Southern states. So when you're out doing voter registration, instead of asking, are you registered to vote? Because virtually everybody will say yes. The appropriate question is, is your voter registration up to date? That will make people stop and think, what do you mean is it up to date? What does that mean? And then you show them how to check it. I always stress the ability to vote rather than the right to vote, because most people believe that when they register to vote, if they don't move, they will be registered to vote forever. And unfortunately, in many, many states, that is just not true. If there were truly a right to vote, we would also have a right to not vote. And in most other states, states and in our more voter-suppressed northern states, missing three federal elections in many states is ground for deregistration. You will be removed from the voter roll. So one of the things that we do at Center for Common Ground is we don't do a lot of registering new voters. We work really hard to keep those voters who are on the cusp of being thrown off the voting rolls. We work very hard to get them voting so that 
that clock starts over and they can remain as registered voters. Now, we're able to talk a lot more about Georgia. So oh, I'm going to just hit the high or maybe the low. Um, the new redistricting maps divide communities of color. So they're breaking up a lot of majority districts and they're kind of wiggling voters around into other districts. Because of when they did this redistricting, there's been very little time for candidates and organizations like ours to adequately review who is actually in this district and to come up with a plan. Uh, more than 350,000 voters in Georgia, and I believe I saw the article from Great Palace, have had their voter registrations challenged. So it's going to be really, really critical that voters in Georgia really look at, am I still registered to vote? Is my registration active? And after all this redistricting and everything else, there really is no net gain of majority-minority seats. It's pretty much the same number they had. They just wiggled everybody around. Now, our Central Georgia Democracy Center leader is running for Congress. She was originally planning on running in Congressional District 13. Now she's not exactly sure what district it is. And then Lucy McPath has been totally drawn out of her congressional district. So as I said, this new redistricting has potentially created more challenges, problems, and confusion than it's solving. North Carolina, um, the General Assembly is supermajority Republican. They've got their new photo ID law. People aren't used to it. It's going to be very interesting to see what we're able to do with older voters who, if they no longer drive, may not really have reason to have the photo ID. Um, North Carolina consistently has refused to redistrict, or when they do, it's like, did you understand the instructions? And it's like, yeah, we did. We just chose not to follow them. When we are working with voters in North Carolina, there are no drop boxes. So vote by mail in North Carolina is fraught. I already talked about this new law that says if the electors on the county board of elections cannot agree on where and what they're using for early voting locations, the county will end up with only one early voting location. And North Carolina still requires a witness signature on vote by name. Now, Alabama, Alabama, because of um, the lawsuit, has created a true uh, second majority minority district. And the primary for that will be on March 5th. Now, the challenge in Alabama is they have no early voting. And they also have no vote by mail with no excuse. We are currently looking at Texas, where, as I said, the largest county in Texas, Harris County, 
has been taken over by the State Board of Elections. So that in and of itself is going to be fascinating. In spite of all that, I have a tremendous, tremendous amount of hope that we are going to have a great election season in 2024. Is it going to be challenging? Yes, it's going to be challenging. But we can work our way through and get past those challenges. So thank you, Harvey and the whole group. Thank you. That was really mind-boggling, very impressive. And I want to switch now to Ray McQuendon in Atlanta. Uh, to, and then we will add and, and have questions and comments, but uh, phenomenal. Uh, uh, really, we applaud you. We have 52 people on the call. We are live streaming. We are, will be rebroadcast. We are archived. And this is a, a record-setting uh, introduction to 2024. Uh, Ray McClendon, uh, Communities United, um, uh, uh, sidekick, uh, co-organizer co- with Andrea, uh, what have you got going now for 2024? Well, Andrea has laid out for you the the the, the map of of what we face. Uh, and, and let me just start uh, with uh, you take all of the data that she has, and we have an uphill battle. But not only are we going to survive, as you pointed out, Harvey, but I think we can thrive in 2024 if we change the strategy that we've been harping on now for the last uh, several election cycles that we moved to a collaborative strategy of relational organizing and use what Andrea has put together as an extraordinary digital platform that we can execute relationally on a, on, on a local level. One of, one of the things that we're starting this year and, and it begins this month is that we know we need year round uh, citizen engagement. We, we are up against that uh, with the Republicans uh, and, and the, the uh, MAGA uh, cult that's out there. Uh, they've had this strategy. Uh, you've talked about it from Steve, uh, from Steve Bannon and others, that they are focused on local election boards, on school boards, and y- using um, the, the uh, politics of, of hate uh, and riling up their base. Uh, to take over local election apparatus. And by doing so, that will negate a lot of the, uh, what I want to call enthusiasm that you will see from from, uh, progressives on a local level because we are not as organized. So one of the things that we want to do is to focus on organizing on the local level on a year-round basis and is starting this month. In years past, we would wait until um, uh, a month before the first primary, get involved in the primary, then then uh, we would have uh, some downtime until later in the summer, the general election started up. Uh, that doesn't work because we are confronted with uh, apathy and quite candidly, and I hate to say it, but we have misinformation and disinformation, at least the ignorance of a lot of our voters. Uh, they don't follow this stuff the way that the, the folks on this call follow. And so you've got to have this year-round engagement. You've got to meet people where they are. 
You've got to disabuse them of the disinformation and misinformation that's out there. And you've got to tell them, as, as uh, we love to point out, Andrea in particular likes to point out that, that through democracy centers and through our, world, our local engagement, we find out what people's pain points are to meet them at their point of need in order to get them engaged uh, early on. You know, when we do, when, we've talked about doing a, a lot of engagement in, later in the year. And what folks, especially young folks, ask us is, why are you coming to us now when you want our vote when you have not been around for the rest of the year? And so that is why we have to start early. Now, there's a great challenge here because the 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 um, other side is dealing with 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 hate, with vitriol, with 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 demonization in a, in a, in a lot of cases and firing up their base on culture wars. So how do we combat that? And they have a lot of money. Uh, the way that we have to combat that is by meeting people at their point of need and being as organized or even more organized than they are. And we have fallen woefully short on that in the past. Uh, yes, the, uh, the, the Koch brothers are still putting in lots of money. There are uh, many other billionaires that are on the conservative side that are putting in a lot of money. But I look at the small amount of money that we had that we put into the races uh, for the runoff for the two Senate races in, in January of 2021. And what we were able to do in BIPOC communities across the state of Georgia, that we made a tremendous difference with less than a million dollars from all of our organizations combined. Uh, so we can get a lot of bang for the buck in these states that uh, Andrea has talked about targeting uh, without having to spend uh, the same level of money that the other side is spending. So the first thing, as I said, is year-round citizen engagement uh, uh, starting now in order to combat this apathy and ignorance. Uh, the, 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 the other thing that we've got to do is, is a better job of, of dealing with, and we're starting this now, is dealing more and more on a targeted basis where we can win races. We, we, we need uh, a, a strategy to win, not just to improve general or generic turnout, but a strategy to run. Now, what do I mean by that? As an example, uh, Andrea mentioned about <clears throat> what happened with the redistricting here in Georgia, and we were very upset that the judge went along with the uh, Republican map, uh, which in our view uh, did not meet the letter or the spirit of the law. And just to give you a quick background on what happened, um, it was required to create a new majority black district. Uh, so what the Republican uh, supermajority legislature did in, a, in an underhanded way was they dis, um, disingenuously dismantled a district that was majority minority. It wasn't majority black, it was majority minority, um, which was the district that uh, Lucy McBath won in 2020. Now, you have to know the history that Lucy McBath was previously in a Northwest uh, Georgia, uh, Atlanta sub suburb, 
and had done very well in that Northwest, they dismantled that district and forced her to run in the Northeast, which is Gwinnett County, which is the majority minority. She won that <clears throat> in order to then disenfranchise her again. They created the, ma the majority uh, Black district uh, on the west side of Atlanta, which covers uh, approximately five counties, multiple cities across a broad section uh, of, of the west side of Atlanta, and it splits up neighborhoods within the city of Atlanta, uh, which means that she's going to have to run in, in that new sixth district. Uh, so what that the bottom line of all of that is that by splitting up uh, her old district, they are dis disenfranchising not Black voters, but other minority voters and saying, well, gee whiz, we're sorry about that, but you wanted us to create a majority Black district, so we've met that requirement. We don't understand why the judge went along with that, um, but, but he did, an Obama appointee, by the way, and uh, that is going to be appealed. So the bottom line, whereas in Alabama, and we hope in Louisiana, we should get an additional Black member of Congress in Georgia, it will be the status quo. So you have to, so you have to, to, to recognize that. And this is why uh, we've got to begin playing the long game here um, to ensure that on a local level, we are identifying candidates, not just for 2024, but for 2026, 2028, that can begin to run in state legislature. We've got to begin to nurture those candidates uh, and get them running so that as these um, demographics continue to change, uh, especially in states like Georgia and, 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 and Florida, Alabama, et cetera, that we'll have candidates that are ready to run and then we can begin to turn the tide on a long-term basis. We, we, again, have to look at what the other side has done. Uh, they have been fighting against Roe versus Wade since for the uh, entire time that it was in place. We don't play that way. Uh, we only get upset when something turns against us when they've been in, in the background working their deals for decades. So so our challenge, now, number one, is to, to put this year-round strategy in place now for the long term. In the immediate in 2024, we know that the United States faces um, an existential threat to democracy. We've all talked about it. We, we know it's there. That is not going to move. Democracy is not going to move the needle with a lot of our BIPOC community. Uh, that is not the message. We have got to take some time over, over, over the next um, couple of months and define messaging that deals with uh, the misinformation and disinformation and what addresses the pain points of uh, our voters on a very granular level. <clears throat> so that's where we'll be spending time in addition to, to creating the infrastructure for engagement. It will be working on the messaging that will deal directly with the misinformation that's out there. Now, we can get into some of the questions later, and I won't, I won't belabor the point now, but um, the, the, the Republican strategy is to, to, to misinform uh, voters of color uh, and give them the illusion that either 
um, both sides are corrupt and why even vote at all? Or, uh, hey, give us a shot. You might as well give us a shot because the Democrats have never done anything for you anyway. <clears throat> and the truth be told, with a segment of the population, that works. And we're not talking about those who, you know, you know, re read uh, political news, Axios, Politico, da Daily Beast, uh, and, and watch shows on on a regular basis. But there are people who get their news from Instagram and 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 TikTok. These are the pe people that they're trying to peel off. And if they can peel off ten percent, remember in Georgia. Um, Joe Biden won by 11,799 votes. You don't need to even peel off 5% of black voters uh, and know that that would flip, that would have flipped that election to uh, Trump. So our challenge now is to deal with the apathy that is out there for, <laughs> for any, either of these two older men, as, as a lot of these folks like to talk about they're both too old and they, they don't care about either. We can't make this a popularity contest. Uh, who do you like the most? It's got to be about what will make a difference in their lives immediately based upon the outcome and understanding how these decisions can make on uh, will make on their lives on a very visceral level. The Democratic Party is terrible at that kind of messaging. It's going to be incumbent upon us. We can't wait on them. Uh, as a great phrase from Black Voters Matter says, it's about us. And we got to make it about us. We got to make it about BIPOC voters in 2024 and what will make the difference. The only way to talk about democracy is to talk about what freedoms will be stripped away from our voters if we don't stand up and why a certain certain uh, group of people are being are lying to them about what the real consequences are. So I'll I'll leave it right there and 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 leave time for questions. Well, God, thank you both. In incredible presentations. Um, over the uh, um, uh, this is our 163rd meeting, and over the meetings uh, we've had with you, Ray and Andrea, uh, we've discussed uh, uh, some primary strategies um, in, in terms of the hands-on hardware of the campaigning. Uh, you meant, And I will say, you know, one of our chief themes has been to move, ask people to move their donations for progressive candidates away from media buys and into uh, uh, community, uh, 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 democracy centers, door-to-door uh, -door campaigning, relational campaigning, using local people in the campaigns as opposed to bringing people in uh, from out of a neighborhood. And so when you, Ray, talk about uh, issues that impact people's lives, that's what the purpose of relying on local campaigners as opposed to bringing in people from out uh, of the neighborhoods uh, at, the, at the core of the campaign. I will mention that in recent uh, weeks, um, major media articles, including the New York Times, have said that both Ron DeSantis and Vivek um, uh, Schwartz, Swami, yeah. <laughs> Vivek Jones, uh, have uh, <laughs> have moved their money away from media and into the same kinds of organizing strategies that we've been discussing here. So, for the purpose of our record. 
Can you mention, please, the the principal pillars of our of our campaigning um, uh, work so that we have it on record and we're all clear on what we're talking about outside the world of buying media? Sure, sure. Well, it, it, it's, it's very simple, and, and it's, it's something that uh, harkens back to the civil rights movement and, and the way that, that uh, our civil rights leaders from Dr. King, John Lewis, and others organized. When you, go into, when you go into a local community, you find the leaders in that community, and you work with those le- leaders then because they are the trusted messengers in those communities. So what you bring is the energy, the vision, the infrastructure, and surround the local leadership with that to galvanize the people that they know. Uh, so so what, what we have structured here between the Center for Common Ground and Communities United, that uh, we have both the relationships with the various groups in different states, and we've talked about this before, the Divine Nine organizations, which represent all of the Black fraternities and sororities, the um, the Masons and Eastern Stars, which are in every county uh, virtually across the Southeast. Uh, we we have uh, other faith, faith-based organizations. And, and what we bring to the table is the, the, the expertise of knowing how to organize with uh, the infrastructure that... Um, Andrea brings through the Center for Common Ground as an example when she was talking about uh, the van system versus PDI. What we want to do is give that expertise to the local people to say, you don't have to worry about uh, how to come up with a phone banking strategy, text banking, how to do postcarding. You just go and mobilize your local people because you know them. You're in church with them every Sunday. You're, you're in the post office with them. They know you and trust you, and we bring them out. Uh, we will organize the canvassing for you. you. All you have to do, again, is to mobilize people from those communities. So when they see kids walking down the street, that those are kids that they know <laughs> that go to, the, to that that played in the, in the local basketball games and, and football games and so forth. Though that makes a difference as opposed to having the Democratic Party hire some people, fly them in somewhere, and have them walk in the streets. And with all due respect, you know, a, a, a lot of good people, but they're not local people, and therefore they are not going to get the same time of day as working with people who are part of those local communities who can say when 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 Aunt Josie can say to can see somebody walking down the street and say, hey, you know, I know your granddaddy, I know your grandfather, you need to vote because this is important. That has a different visceral connection than having people that are not in the neighborhood. So relational organizing is about taking people that are trusted in those communities and work with us who are uh, or have expertise in organizing grassroots strategies that we can be their infrastructure so that all they have to do is to mobilize their local community volunteers. Fantastic. And of course, um, Andrea and her organization adds the dimension uh, of phone banking and postcards. And um, um, it's interesting to hear Andrea say no longer voter registration, but, you know, confirmation of uh, people's registrations. Well, Maybe- listen, I've worked, I've, worked with, I've worked with both. I've, I've worked as, as when I was 
with the NAACP, we used Van. And I can tell you it was awfully frustrating using Van because you had some upwards of 40 to 50% of the numbers didn't work, okay? And and so you, you, you're getting your volunteers frustrated because they, they got a lot of numbers that don't work. You have canvassing when you're going out and, and the apartment building is no longer there. So you just, you just have a lot of inefficiency uh, with that system. And now that it's, it's owned by the Saudis, makes that even worse. Uh, PDI is a much better system. It starts with the cell phone numbers for texting and phone banking. Nowadays, you know, you know, younger folks want they want to be texted anyway. So it makes so it makes a, a a big difference to have that kind of infrastructure. You know, when when we need to do postcarding, I don't have to worry about taking my time to try to train people on postcarding. Andrea's got a system set up. She she's got um, videos, the whole nine yards. All I've got to do is get to let's say the churches and tell the church leaders, hey, listen, identify your members who want to do postcarding and then we'll set set it up and then we move on from there. It's not them trying to reinvent the wheel in order to be engaged. It's about mobilization in their communities. And that's the way we can be more efficient. And that's the way we can do a lot more with less than um, worrying about how much money the other side has. If we can, we can do a lot with a little. So Andrea is saying uh, plug and play. And of <laughs> course, what you're saying here, you, you have focused on uh, the Southeast, Virginia, Georgia, Southern states, but everything you're saying applies uh, on a 50 state basis. So right. um, uh, this is uh, uh, the way we, we need to move forward with all grassroots organizing around the U.S., in the pivotal year 2024. Uh, Myla Reeson, Wendy Lederman, and Justin. Uh, Myla, go ahead, please. I have a, a quick question. Uh, it's sort of tangential in a way, but I'm wondering whether you are taking into account the continued um, leadership, so to speak, of the United States Post Office uh, by Louis DeJoy. And I'm yes. wondering how that will... Uh, what kind of strategies you've developed to factor into the fact that he is continuing to hobble the Postal Service and how will that affect our approach or your approach to uh, mail-in voting? Um, well, we uh, generally don't encourage people to do vote by mail. Our uh, participants where we do outreach are voters of color, many who have no experience with vote by mail. There are a lot of traps in vote by mail. When we are preparing to send postcards, we have a very long ramp time where we tell our writers, you need to have your postcards in the mail by this date. We normally try to be 10 to 12 days before Early voting is due to start if people have not already been sending their postcards. When we are dealing with vote by mail, which we do not like, we make it a point of giving people all of the critical, critical dates. As a matter of fact, if the voters are older, many of our phone bankers will give a personal number and say now. When you get your ballot, call me 
and I will walk you through all the steps. That is why we found out in 2020 that there were two Georgia counties that were not providing the security envelope so that when we were telling the voters what to do and we were looking at the Secretary of State's guidelines for returning your vote by mail ballot, people were like, what security envelope? And we were like, what? And they're like, oh, I don't have a security envelope. And then when four people from that county gave us that information, we immediately contacted our attorneys who then contacted the Georgia Secretary of State, who then contacted the county going, uh, our manual is very explicit about what people are supposed to do, and you have made it impossible. Wow, amazing. And this is this is life or death, basically, for our democracy in all 50 states going forward. Uh, we will make this into a, 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 a guidebook, um, and we will make these uh, videos available as we move forward. We're at the top of the hour. We, we will go another hour. Um, as long as we need you to cover all this, this is the first meeting of 2024. Um, uh, Wendy, uh, Wendy Wiederman, uh, did you want to jump in here, please, from Florida? Thank you so much. And thank you, guys. It's really great to see you. And I'm excited and feeling um, have, have faith, you know, for the new year, um, especially. Yeah, I know your work is just so important. And I don't think people are really seeing like what Harvey just said, what's truly, truly on the line, like what would happen, the consequences, like what the actual platform for the other side in action would look like. Um, I did want to raise one quick thing with um, and I do have a question. But there's a, um, I just wanted to let you know about a guy running for Congress in um, Illinois' 11th district. His name's Kasim Rashid, and he's pretty amazing. I've been following him for months. He's a human rights lawyer running all grassroots. I just highly recommend. I'm going to try to get him on the show and reach out to him. But Kasim Rashid, I hope everybody gives him a lot of support. So um, something that I'm seeing, <laughs> thanks, and um, something I'm seeing that I don't, I don't want to bring up. Nobody wants to talk about it, but it really is pervasive in what I'm seeing, what I'm feeling, um, especially with the young crowds. Um, your input on what's happening with the indiscriminate bombing of Gaza and the funds that are being sent to do this to oppress all these people and, you know, 30,000 people killed um, and half of them children and our support for this. And a lot of people, I think, are looking past the consequence of the other side and in their hearts unable to watch this and um and, and to support anyone that would fund the murder of children and and everything that is going on um so just how this is um what just your input on that i mean words really just kind of fail me on this um so um, thank you. and again it's what population of voters are you working with in the south we are working with black voters many of our black voters are rural many of our black voters are basically doing what they can to make it from day to day they are not following israel palestine gaza they don't know where those places the college students Yes, most of the voters where we do outreach, they are not in college. It is not that level of American voter. Hey, thank you for that. Thank you, Wendy. Ray, did you I want... mean, it is a great question, but 
that is not our target audience. And I talked to the young people on our phone bank team and they were like, oh, what? Okay, thank you, Ray. We did are the one percent of politics. Okay, uh, Ray, did you want to add to that? Or no, I, 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 I agree with Andrea. It's, it's, it's a terrible problem, and the policy needs to change. But um, you know, as Black people uh, and and Brown people, uh, need to recognize that what what you alluded to, which Wendy, which is that it will be even worse on the other side. And I, I know, I know that that. Sounds more like what aboutism that they do, but the reality is: Has anybody read Project Twenty Twenty Five to see what um, not just Trump, but the policy of the other side will be if they get in power, uh, and what it will mean not just for Palestinians, but for all Muslims, all immigrants, all Black people, all Brown people? So, so I, again, a part of this is bad messaging on the part of. Uh, those folks who want to touch the people that we're going after. As Andrew said, it's not as big of an issue for the people that we're going after right now. We're dealing with the existential threat of what will happen to people of color, immigrants, and others who are marginalized if we allow for a dictatorship to uh, and authoritarianism to take over in the United States. Now, we can't say it in directly those terms. We got to break terms down that will resonate in our community. I, I want to say, uh, as a historian, thank you, Wendy. As a historian, I have to say, and, and as someone who's been an uh, activist for 60 years, I am struck by how blatantly authoritarian the uh, right-wing uh, campaigning has been. There has been absolutely no attempt on the part of Trump uh, and those people supporting him to... Um, disguise their dictatorial uh, program. Uh, this is this is new in American politics. No one has ever run for the presidency of the United States promising the kind of authoritarian rule that Donald Trump uh, is is proposing. Um, and it's shocking. I mean, uh, I am a huge um, a hater, I have to put it, of Woodrow Wilson. Uh, who was a, and given if you compare Woodrow Wilson's two terms, or well, second term to Donald Trump, Wilson actually put in place a dictatorship in this country. And, but he never campaigned on that. Quite the opposite. He always portrayed himself as a small D Democrat, make the world safe for democracy, all that. He was a complete dictator, a, a horrible authoritarian president. But he never came out and said it. He always said the opposite. Here we have in 2024, I believe, the first campaign in American history where a major candidate, a major party nominee, is absolutely upfront about making himself a dictator. How do we at the grassroots respond to that? Again, like I said, I, I don't want to get wrapped up in, you know, Israeli-Palestinian politics. We've got to we got enough issues to deal with right here at home. And I understand that a lot of people are very passionate. Um, but we can't have a, a single issue um, response uh, that lets the other side off the hook. Um, we've seen how that has worked out in the past, where we've had a one-issue litmus test. And how has that worked out for us? When we had, when, when we had some people 
who have been upset over one issue and have withheld their votes. Uh, what has what what we've allowed uh, not voting? I wish we had somebody else to vote for. We don't. If we but if we look at where we are today, and and if we do not uh, stop Trump from getting in office, a vote uh, 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 staying at home is essentially going to help to propel Trump back in. And if he's in office, it will be the last election that we have in America. Uh, and, we'll be and we'll be rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. So what issues actually work for you? Uh, put, going forward into 24, we have a grassroots uh, game plan. Um, we know to do certain, avoid the media and spend our money uh, at the grassroots with democracy centers and relational organizing. We know that uh, phone banking works and the postcards work. What are the issues themselves that you believe will resonate in 24 among a pro-democracy, um, in, a, in a pro-democracy campaign? Um, well, we are talking about protecting Social Security and Medicare, especially for our older voters. Um, what's going to happen with climate under Project 2025? That's basically drill, baby, drill. It's all oil and gas. So we have climate, voting rights, um, education for all. So various issues that are very kitchen table for voters that they understand. They walk to their front door and they are confronted with this issue for our voters out in rural counties. They, in rural counties, they have no hospitals. Their hospital has closed down. They do not know where Gaza or Israel is. That is not where they're thinking. What about uh, poverty and homelessness? How do those issues uh, relate at the grassroots now? Affordable, affordable, uh, affordable, affordable housing, housing. Uh, is, is, is definitely on that list. Um, healthcare uh, uh, and sustaining healthcare. Again, the, the other side continues to give us gifts. We don't know how to use them. We don't know. You know, Trump has come out and said he, he wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act. They have no credible plan to replace it. So that means that that will throw tens of millions of people uh, onto the uninsured list. Um, we, we know what we, we, we know what uh, the issues are with reproductive rights. Uh, and, and Andrew, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but what we're finding is that you have to nuance the message on reproductive rights because it's a it's a uh, uh, maternal mortality issue in black and brown communities. Yes. That's disproportionate. Georgia, as an example, has one of the highest um, black and brown mortality rates in the country. It's, it's on the level of a third world nation. Why? Be beca because of the issues around um, uh, the lack of Medicaid expansion, but also because there's just not the reproductive health care available that should be available, but for these um, repressive uh, uh, you know, abortion bill. So, so we have to target the messaging. That's why it's so important uh, for us to take the time now to craft uh, targeted messaging with targeted messenger, with trusted messenger. 
Wow. Uh, so we'll be doing that over the course of the, the, the next six to eight weeks to really come up with that as we move into the primary. Uh, the presidential primary is March 12th, uh, uh, but but we're really looking at this for the other primary. And, and, and that's important that we go across the state because issues in Metro Atlanta are different than issues in the Black Belt in South and Southwest Georgia. And that's well, that, where it needs to be in every, that's where it needs to be in every state. So in all the years of, uh, of following the abortion debate, I've never heard that term maternal mortality. That is a devastating term uh, that, that I think should be used. Targeted messaging with targeted messengers. That's, that's very, very uh, 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 clear and I think appealing as well. I will want to tangentially, um, and Myla mentioned this, what is happening with Louis DeJoy and why is he still running the Postal Service? I mean, it's in, he's been there almost four years it, 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 uh, under Biden. This is, there's no excuse for this. I, I have no answer for it. Uh, it's a mystery to me how this guy is still in power if Joe Biden is president of the United States. Makes no sense whatsoever. Um, are there any other me- uh, um, p- specific issues, uh, Ray and Andrea, that... Uh, I, I want to just say something about what um, uh, Mike Hirsch just put in the tra- chat. He said, Biden isn't a dictator and can't give us things. Trump will be a dictator and could take away everything. And I and I think that something as simple as that is what uh, we need to start using something like that. And uh, on that same level... Uh, we, you know, people don't understand, as an example, uh, why we don't have more uh, student debt forgiveness. And there are people who really still believe that's something Biden has not done. He has not done it because there were Republican attorney generals that sued to ensure that he could not do more. Uh, and and that's, again, a part of the misinformation that we need to, to deal with, is that we've got to explain to people that, yes, he wants to do more, but he needs more folks that are like-minded, that are in positions of power in order to get him to execute. But we know what will happen if Trump gets in. We know it by the Project 2025 document, where they're going to have a unitary uh, office of the presidency, and he's going to have all power that's going to be centered in his office. Uh, and that's going to change the way America operates uh, forever. Well, let me ask you, do people at the grassroots um, in the neighborhoods and the communities understand that? Is no. that they do no. not? No, so that's so not an issue. Break it down. We have to. So what we'll be doing over the next couple of months, few several weeks, uh, is to break it down where it is. Um, touches a nerve with them directly. We we not we can't have it in these broad you know um, political platitudes. We have to break those things down. Use use terminology just like Mike used, and say, well, what does that mean in 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 your life? They said they want to take away um, the the uh, the more more of your rights for. Uh, your sister or yourself, if you're a black female, and your ability to get the health care you need um, uh, when you're pregnant. Those are the things that we need to begin to break down on a level that will resonate. And that and th- those pain points 
we're not going to get into tonight, but that's what we've got to take the time. Uh, and we've already started looking at Project 2025 and what, what, what they're saying on paper in black and white and put that up against, okay, what does that mean to freedom that you take for granted right now um, in, your com in, in your particular community? Well, I will remind you of a very brief historical. Uh, there was another plan. It was called the Houston Plan. It was uh, devised under Richard Nixon in the lead up to the 1972 election. And he had a professor lay out exactly what they could do to cancel the 1972 election, which they would have done if he thought he had needed it. Turned out he didn't need it, Nixon, in 72. But you may want to refer back to that. It's H-U-S-T-O-N plan. Um, uh, Justin and then Ruth. Justin LeBlanc, please. And this is a fantastic discussion that I'm sure no one else in this country is having on a major Zoom call. We're really grateful for the two of you for your time on this. Uh, and it's, it couldn't be more to the, to the point. The, the issues that we come up with, and we have Joel Siegel on the line who has worked both with homelessness, uh, um, uh, uh, unaffordable housing, and the ACA. I will also mention as a senior that there's, the Republicans are not apologetic about cutting Social Security or Medicare. And these two issues certainly resonate. And, have, you know, they've referred to uh, Social Security as the third rail um, um, of American politics, along with Medicare. Um, I'll tell you, boy, I, I, uh, that, those are the, of all the issues out there, those are the two for me on a personal level that are most along with the environment. It's interesting you mentioned climate change. Climate, the, the climate issue does seem to have seeped down to the grassroots. Am I right about that? People at the grassroots do seem to understand the climate issue. Is that correct? Yes, no, well, it's more of a it's, it's more of an environmental justice issue in our community because okay. what happens when when climate changes when when uh, it it has disproportionate impact on, on environmental issues in our community and 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 that's what I think that that's what we will be looking at is how we deal with environmental justice as okay. opposed to just global warming. Okay, uh, that's good. I think in California, by the way. We will get some resonance, but it's coming from the Democrats on the attack on solar. There's been a big attack on solar energy in California. Solar is a huge industry in California, 70,000 people, and the Democratic governor has attacked it. And well, I, I well, think let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Let me give you a, a hard example um, that Biden doesn't get credit for uh, and the Democrats because, you know, the buying an electric vehicle, and I know Andrea is up to speed on all of this, can probably break it down better than I can, um, typically has been a tool of, you know, middle to upper income because of, of uh, or upper middle income uh, because of the way that you could use the tax credit only at the, only when you uh, file for your taxes. Well, they're changing the rules now so that you can use the credit at the time of purchase. Who is that going to help? Right. That's going to help those voters who are not as sophisticated on how to apply a tax credit against their their uh, annual IRS bill. But also it will give them more equity that will be available to them directly at the time of purchase on the that lower 
on the lower priced vehicle. So there'll be people who are more moderate to lower income that are trying to buy cars that would be uh, that would have the ability to buy an electric vehicle. That's the kind that's the kind of subtle change in tax policy that has been brought on by the Democrats that will that will help people to become more environmentally savvy in, in, in purchasing an electric vehicle. Well, I will say I, I actually had an Uber ride a couple of days ago and the guy had a Tesla and uh, Uber is uh, f- uh, giving him a Tesla for three fifty a month which is an incredibly low pro- lease price for Tesla. And I asked him, he can fill his batteries for uh, uh, upwards of 300 miles for $8. So at some point, EVs are going to uh, filter in. I will say in, uh, um, in, um, in Georgia, I don't have to tell you, as an outsider, it would have seemed to me that the, the actual number one economic issue in Georgia is who's going to pay for the Volcal nuclear plants at $40 billion. I don't know how that is going to seep down to the grassroots, but Georgia is about to get completely hammered on electric. Yeah, we've been involved in that issue. Um, uh, plant Vogel just received the highest um, uh, cost increase that will be passed on to ratepayers right. in our history. Oh, it's insane. And, and and they voted on and they voted on it essentially in secret. Uh, they had to open up the meeting to actually pass it, but they made the decision uh, behind closed doors, which I really still don't understand how they were able to do that. Uh, but but <clears throat> they they have they are going to fleece the the ratepayers uh, uh, through through the um, Vogel nu- nuclear plant. But that's that's a conversation for another day. I know you can go on about no, that. No, that's all right. But I'm wondering in Georgia if anybody is going to pick up on that at the grassroots because people can get killed on their utility bills by that news. Well, you know, we had a broader issue on that when because in Georgia, the challenge we have is that in Georgia, the members of the public ser- uh, uh, public, public utility service. service commission uh, are all statewide um, positions. And and therefore we don't have any black folks on that commission. Although um, did run. as you as as it, the way it's set up is they pick them from different regions, but then they have to be voted on statewide. Um, we ha- we have we have sued against that. Um, we're still in court trying to trying to work through that. Uh, but again, the delay tactics that uh, the other side uses ensures that they they run out the clock so that you can't use that in the in the initial election that's what's happening with the redistricting right now this will be the the maps that just the map that just got done will be uh appealed but what raffensperger is going to turn around and say the secretary of state is oh well it's too late yes we have this appeal but just let us use this map for now that's the best we can do which gives them the ability to keep the nine five split. That's that's their strategy. Run out the clock to keep the status. That no, they did that in Ohio too, as we'll hear from Steve Caruso. This is really amazingly important stuff. Uh, Justin uh, LeBlanc and then uh, Ruth Strauss. Go ahead, Justin. Yeah. So I want to really resonate on the parallels between what happens in the Middle East and what happens in, say, a state like Georgia, right? There is genocide happening in the sense of life expectancy is dropping. 
There are people who are in, unfair. In the United States, life expectancy Even is in the United, United States, in the right. United States yes. especially in the South. Right. And the uh, people who are wrongly imprisoned, very high in the South. People who don't get their voting rights back after they get out of prison, a lot more in the South. And in Ohio, by the way. I'm sorry, but, you know, let's, let's face the reality. Kids don't who don't get fed at school because their families can't afford it at home. A lot more in the South. Is that an issue that you uh, work on school uh, school lunches, feeding kids at school? Is that a political, uh, a useful political tool? Ray and Andrea, no? Okay, just curious. Go ahead, so, Justin. You know, clean air, clean water, access to basic survival needs of life, right? You can't even go uh, and get a water bottle from somebody somewhere near your polling station, right? We, we have laws that are that draconian. And so, you know, we're, we're practically living in an electoral dictatorship in some states in the United States. And so it, it's, you know, we, we shouldn't be disparaging that we haven't solved all problems at once. We should be talking about solidarity, about how we can solve common problems. Okay. And so one of the things that I wanted to bring up uh, from American Democracy Summit that was held in uh, September is uh, that some companies have realized that, you know, the, the system is not sustaining itself. So they have actually taken on the mantle to do voter registration through their company. Even one of them, Patagonia, was talking about doing poll worker recruiting. And so what I'm wondering is, you know, we used to do boycotts against companies that were causing problems. Well, now we have companies that want to solve problems. Is there Are there uh, outreach happening directly bypassing the DNC and all their dark money and all their ad guys to go directly to these companies and say, hey, why don't you sponsor a democracy center? Ray or Andrea, that's an interesting idea. Uh, that That is a great idea. I had never heard about what Patagonia is doing. So, um, right. Um, we don't know and have not heard, or at least I don't know and have not heard about what those organizations are doing. We would love that because democracy centers cost about $50,000 a year. How much? Well, right. could you could you actually we, we actually had this conversation yesterday at Pacifica. Pacifica has been listener supported forever. We've never had any kind of um, corporate or business um, uh, subsidization, and we're now talking about actual sponsorship, not ads, but you know, underwriting is uh, that's the term underwriting. And I'm wondering if a democracy center. Given the political climate, could be underwritten. Of course, we know that the big corporations will come in and do the opposite and and underwrite anti-democracy centers. You know, uh, th this center aimed at suppressing your vote has been sponsored by the Koch brothers. I mean, I, you know, that's probably what would happen. But from the from the progressive side, I guess you know you could have underwriting on a democracy center. I don't know. Anyway, um, uh, okay, thank you for that, Justin. Very interesting. Uh, Ruth Strauss? Um, hi. So anyway, um, it may not be on a lot of people's radar, but the whole business of uh, minority obstetrical uh, problems is definitely on the medical community radar, and I'm certain it's on, you know, uh, Ray's and Andrea's and a lot of um, minority women. 
uh, I just finished a um, a cardiology obstetrics course. Anyway, um, by the way, Brian and Andrea, Dr. Ruth is a doctor. She's a a heart surgeon. So go ahead, Brian. Anyway, uh, thank you. we now have three women of very diverse background with horrendous cases, uh, which are, you know, the woman in Texas who, uh, you know, had the uh, deformed child that wasn't going to leave. There's a hair-raising thing that most people should know about, about this young African-American woman who nearly died because she was miscarrying, got sent home from the hospital because the hospital was afraid of getting sued. And, you know, this is not, uh, you know, lunch talk, but uh, miscarried into her own commode and had uh, and and then was uh, then was going to be prosecuted. Uh, Then there's the child that was raped. Uh, who had to go out of state. And finally, what I really want to get to is Serena Williams, you know, the famous tennis player, got ignored in the hospital about leg pain, which turned out to be a pulmonary embolism uh, after her delivery. So the bottom line is there's plenty of evidence out there. It would be wonderful if we could get Serena on any kind of public announcement. There's also... The Center for Reproductive Rights are the lawyers who are representing Kate Cox in Texas. Uh, there's a center for, there's a National uh, Women's Law Center. So we do have allies. Women are 50% of the population. And if 51. we want motiv- and this is a motivating issue. So we got to get behind it. Thank you. Well, let's say, uh, Wendy Lederman in the lead up did a little research for us. It's just been a, absolutely horrendous Supreme Court decision about Idaho. Uh, Wendy, can you tell us about that decision? Wendy? Wendy? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, and it um, it ties in with uh, the Texas case that was just mentioned. Um, so basically there's um, it's a federal act, a federal law called um, MTELA. It's the um, Emergency Medical Treatment um, and Labor Act, and it's a federal statute or federal law that um, states that emergency care must be provided if it's life-saving, whether no matter your, um, no matter state law, no matter your your financial ability to, to pay, no matter who you are as a human being, you have the right to get emergency treatment to save your life. And this and is a so, federal um, law. This is under the federal law. This is a federal, yeah. And, um, and so now what's happening is, um, Idaho just had a case where the lower court said, well, you know, if it's an emergency, it still falls within the state law. And that's not superseded by the federal law, which is absolute bonkers because <laughs> that's not how the law works. <laughs> it's just not that's completely unprecedented. I mean, we literally have these judges just like making things up. I like it's really hard for me to not curse on the show right now because <laughs> of just they're just making it up. They're just making up the law. Same thing in Texas, um, as Kate Cox, as um, Ruth just mentioned, where she had an unviable um, pregnancy. She wanted to leave the state and um, the state attorney or the attorney general, Ken Paxton, says, well, you know, fatal fetal abnormalities don't count as um, expectations, um, even though it could disrupt um, her uterus. Like it, there's so much um, going on, like so many reasons why this woman should just be able to have 
basic life-saving treatment and not be forced to actually give birth to this child that's just not viable and um the state's like too bad and they're challenging it in court and now the state supreme court is like upholding these lower court decisions until they can review it themselves and the thing is is in in texas and a lot of other places doctors can face life in prison ten thousand dollars but life in prison if the doctor so it's really them deciding between their patient's life and their own life is what's happening and the thing of it is in texas there was a prison guard a few months ago four months ago she was seven months pregnant and she was having major pain and she wanted to go to the emergency room and this prison that she worked for would not let her take a break to go to the hospital by the time she got there um the it was stillborn and she lost the child and she sued the on the department of criminal justice and this texas state attorney the same guy that is saying that emergencies can't be performed emergency um procedures can't be performed they're also arguing that an unborn child is not considered a person when the state is the one responsible. And so the same state attorney is arguing both sides of, of the case. And um, I, I mean, it, it's just, it's really, it's really mind boggling. It says just because statutes define an individual to include an unborn child does not mean that the 14th amendment does the same. And so like, what, like they're, they're literally just making up malarkey. And um, I do want to touch on um, Brittany Watts. I think she's 32. She was in Ohio. And I did report on this before. Um, she had a miscarriage. She went to the emergency emergency room multiple times. And she was turned away from emergency care. Went home. And while she was using the bathroom, had a miscarriage. And it, I guess flushed it out of like, who knows? Like, I don't know how I would react in that situation. What anybody would do in that moment, you know, like how to handle it. And so she's going before a grand jury for abuse of a corpse. In South Carolina, there's bills that are looking to charge women with homicide for abortions. And even in Florida now, we just got, we got almost 150,000, um, or I'm sorry, a million, like over a million signatures. It's over like a million and five, 500,000 signatures we got, and we needed close to 900,000. And now that we have the number validated that we need, um, the attorney general is trying to state a complaint with the state Supreme Court for review, saying that the word viability can have multiple meanings. But I'm really looking forward to hearing what she considers the other meanings of viability, because um, I think it's uh, Merriam-Webster, I, I had it written down here, um, but it's basically that, um, oh, here, the ability to live and grow and develop. The capability of a fetus to survive outside of the uterus. That's what really what we're looking at. The ability of a fetus to survive outside of the uterus where, you know, they're looking at women as host bodies now. So once it can leave the host, I guess, is considered viability. The ability to okay. function adequately. So, I mean, and they're literally going to take this. I mean, so this is completely just the undermining of democracy, whether it's a state amendment, a constitutional amendment that enough people sign for just to be able to vote on this most personal matter to people, to states and the Supreme Court now saying that federal law does not supersede state law. And like, and they're not even constitutional state laws. They're just like things people made up. So we're, we're at a severe crisis. And like Andrea touched on earlier, that this is a matter of life and death for a lot of women. And I was really sad to see in a lot of situations that 
a lot of, um, I'll be honest, like in a lot of um, black communities, I was, I was told that I'm trying to kill black women because they think that it's a eugenics thing. And I really wish more people understood that it's the life of the mother is not being valued. We're going to lose a lot of women. We're going to lose a lot of black women. We're going to lose a lot of people that don't have the emergency care that they need when these lawmakers that are doing this, that have no education in biology, apparently, their girlfriends, whoever they they want, they need one, they'll get one, but not the rest of us. And it's just time that they stay out of our business and let democracy live. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I'm, I'm curious, Ray and Andrea, as our, our lead organizers at the grassroots, um, you know, the major media has made a point of saying that the abortion issue, the women's rights uh, to, uh, uh, to choose issue could be the defining issue of the election in 24. Uh, does that strike you as um, credible? It was a very important issue in the Virginia election. It was very, very important. And um, I put in the chat because we now control the Virginia House and the Virginia Senate, we have introduced the Constitutional Amendment for Reproductive Freedom. And that is important because constitutional amendments in Virginia do not require the signature or any input whatsoever from the governor. So when we pass this in 2024 and we pass it again in 2025, it goes to the citizens of Virginia for ratification. So yes, it was a very important issue. And do you see it as... Just to add to that, just to add to that, you know, again, I think... Um, to to add in more uh, black uh, women into that, you have to talk about reproductive. Make it a broader conversation. It it then will 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 resonate. Going back to the to the point about um, for whatever reason, black women are not heard when they have complexities in their pregnancy. That's that's really the underlying point about what happened with Serena. Um, it's disproportionate for whatever reason that if a black woman complains, this was a big deal with Kamala Harris met in Atlanta just a week ago with a black doctor. And it was a black female doctor, as a matter of fact, that downplayed uh, that. And she got eviscerated on social media for downplaying that. So you, so, so that really touches a nerve. So the point I'm making with that is we just have to take what is just re- what is abortion and reframe it for our community uh, in order to get the most bang for the buck. And one final point, uh, and I'm sure Dr. Ruth has seen this, and you probably have too, Wendy, but anybody who really wants to get the broader perspective, it was really an eye opener for me, is to watch the Diane Sawyer special on the brink. Uh, it was gut wrenching to watch the whole um, Diane Sawyer, and I think it's Rachel Scott was. The other reporters called On the Brink. Uh, they did a special on a lot of the cases that that you and Dr. Ruth were referring to. I'm not familiar with that. If we can, if someone can dig that up and put it in the chat, that would be really good. I think it's clear that the the defining moment in terms of the court is going to be on the uh, the pill issue, the abortion pill. If they if they ban, I mean, I think a majority of abortions now are done with the pill. Uh, and uh, it really is an issue of healthcare in terms of the hospitals. That's where it's hands on. If they go after the pill, that's going to be 
um, a, a major, major earthquake. Um, um, did you want to add something, Wendy, before we move ahead? We still have 50 people with us. I mean, one thing about these calls is our people <laughs> really have an attention span. And uh, and you guys, uh, Ray and Andrea, are, are really great. Uh, and this is critical. I will mention that uh, next week uh, is Dr. King's um, uh, celebration. And we are going to meet. We will meet next Monday. And if you can join us again, Ray and Andrea, just to keep fleshing this out, um, um, uh, that would be really great because this is the defining moment here. And um, uh, uh, Wendy, did you want to add something in? Thank you. Um, yeah, I guess we're we're really starting to see the um, the attack on democracy. I think a lot of people that don't even really care one way or the other about abortion is going to start to see the in the overreach of the government. I had a lot of pro life people and conservatives signing it just because they know it's none of their damn business and that they're concerned about women's health. Um, and I do really hope to elevate the point of what um, Ray was just saying, particularly and. There is truly an epidemic, a crisis of black women in maternal maternity wards that they're it's just this like it's been found like the systemic racism in the hospitals that women are just left untreated. They're left there to suffer. To, and and this ties in very deeply and intrinsic, intrinsically with abortion and I actually found out about it through um, Tatiana Ali, who um, played Cousin Ashley on um, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air way back in the day. A couple of years ago, she had a really disturbing experience in childbirth. Even the fact that she's famous and, you know, more well off than a lot of other people. And she um, did a lot of writing. And I suggest people looking into Tatiana Ali's um, coverage well, of this. More about it. Good, good. And I hope uh, Serena bought that hospital and fired all the people that were um, uh, uh, responsible. I will tell you, and uh, since uh, uh, we are trying to get Barbara Lee, uh, who's running for Senate in, in, in California, on our Zoom. And I was at an event with her in Santa Monica last week. And somebody asked her when she was radicalized. And she explained that it was at birth because her mother in Texas was about to have her, came to a hospital and they would not not treat her because she was black. And this is in Texas in 1945. And somehow she got, somebody brought her into the hospital and she was in a storage room, for God's sakes. And they were just going to leave her there. And somebody in the hospital finally got her out and got her treated. And that, that's how Barbara Lee was born. And she could just as easily have not been born. So it goes beyond the abortion issue. Obviously, it's an issue of health care. So we have uh, 15 minutes left to the top of the hour. If you uh, can stay with us, I want to do a, a hair-raising report from Ohio. I know I keep raising Ohio and trying to recruit you, and I know that um, you're willing to go there on, on short notice. But um, we, uh, a special notice, we have a report of what you will not believe what's going on in Ohio. I mean, you take – Ohio's always been like the the test market state, Right. And Steve Caruso is with us still in Ohio. Um, and um, the the range of issues that are happening in Ohio now is staggering, um, including, of, of course, we have um, uh, Sherrod Brown up for re-election. I will say that if there was any candidate in the Democratic Party that I would support for president, it's Sherrod Brown. But he, he he's running for Senate again. But they are so thoroughly... Uh, raping and pillaging the right to vote in Ohio 
Now, I think we can end today's call with that. We will reconvene in a week um, and um, uh, for Martin Luther King Day. Hope you both can join us. And um, uh, Steve, can you give us a quick rundown of what's going on in Ohio? It's it's staggering. Which well, which one do you want? I mean, there's well, let's start with voting I mean, rights. Start okay. with voting rights. Well, voting uh, dis- people with disabilities in Ohio are not allowed to give their ballot to a family member to put into mail mailbox or put into the uh, drop box. That's one issue that's going on there. They obviously have the redistricting issue that they're having in the fall this year, 2024, November, on the ballot again. Or is that, wait, that's the abortion issue. Yeah, and one more thing, Ray, Ray says he's got to leave. Ray, thank you so much for being Thanks, with us. Thanks, Ray. We really appreciate it. We hope we come back next week. And Andrew, right. too, if you've got to leave, we appreciate it. Uh, inv- totally invaluable stuff. Thank you so much for giving so much of your time. Uh, okay, go ahead, Steve, proceed. So now people have to have voter IDs, which, you know, it's been on the books for a year. But once again, another obfuscation in getting to the poll to vote. Um, in Columbus, they have a voting center where there's lines that are at least an hour long at the lowest. Okay, so you, if you want to vote, you have to wait in line for an hour. Um, every trick in the book that they can pull off, they're doing it practically with, you know, knocking people. I, I'm waiting to hear from uh, through the vote in Ohio. Has that happened here yet? I haven't heard anything specific about it, but. Uh, well, let's it, let's look at the gerrymandering issue. The this people of Ohio have voted twice in statewide referenda to um, deal with gerrymandering. And the then the um, supermajority legislature, this dates back to, what, 2015, 2016? This has been going on a long time in Ohio. Gerrymandering is not a, a, a mystery here. So we passed, the, the public passed two anti-gerrymandering referenda. Then the uh, supermajority uh, drew up um, uh, new districts, uh, which are completely gerrymandered. And the Supreme Court of the state of Ohio has ordered the just the uh, legislature, uh, the state legislature of Ohio, to draw up fair maps five times. And five times the um, legislative maps um, in Ohio, uh, they've refused to redraw them. And, and now we're at the point, as you can see in the headlines, that we're headed into the 24 election with, with um, uh, uh, maps that have been rejected by the voters as a whole twice by a Republican Supreme Court five times. And we're going into 24 with the same maps that were challenged in 2015. And the Democrats gave up. They just said, well, you know, we're not going to get anywhere fighting this. So we're just going to let it go. And then we're going to get the redistricting thing back on the ballot again. So here we go for a third time. Uh, Mike DeWine on the uh, anti-trans bill in Ohio. He everybody said great. Mike Dwine vetoed it. He turns around, does a three sixty. Well, wait, wait. There was a yeah. uh, coming from the legislature. There was a law passed banning all um, uh, trans uh, surgeries. Is that correct? And Dwine vetoed H- that HB bill. HB sixty eight. HB sixty eight. Yes. Now he he wrote an executive order, Mister Dwine, the head Nazi who's trying to control people. Uh yeah. I wouldn't put it that bad, but you know. Well, he is now put after becoming a great hero for ban- for vetoing an anti-trans bill. Uh, Governor Dewine has put in an executive order that doesn't ban all trans um, um, 
uh, you have to register with the state. You don't yeah. have to register a gun, but the trans people have to register. That is wrong. And, right, and right. So the, the executive order, which uh, uh, the, the legislature, by the way, the Republicans in the legislature have vowed to override his veto and put in an absolute ban on any trans uh, surgeries in Ohio. You the have to have back- a psychiatrist sign off an endocrinologist, a bioethicist, and then you have to be registered with the state. Literally, you have to register with the state. To have a trans procedure. Tataka? All these guys are going to be on the record. Tataka Bricka, you raised your hand? Oh, Oh, he's trying to unmute. Okay, go ahead. Has has anybody ever tried a citizen's arrest? I mean, how come people, how come the people uh, don't have to follow the law? Yeah. well, that's a question that's being asked more and more. It's being asked on, as Wendy has said, on suddenly state law uh, preempts federal law. That's they it. were having a, a rally at the state house January 6th that was supposed to, you know, benefit the memory of Ashley Babbitt. And apparently nobody showed up, thank God, because they're always carrying guns down here. You can't carry a protest sign with a stick, you know? Yeah, it is this amazing, is- actually. People have turned up at the Ohio State House for pro right wing rallies carrying guns uh, uh, you know but you you can't carry a picket sign it's mind boggling uh, so i want to say Ohio, one more thing Barbie, yes, having please. to do with the conversation with uh, ray and andrea i think it's i know it's important for me to find the languaging i've heard some people i know uh who who talk about there's no difference between the political parties and i i get apoplectic you know because, because of the issue of the total loss of the democratic republic so I'm working on now how to communicate with these people in a real simple way, you know, where the heck, I mean, I have to do some listening too. what the heck do they care about? And there, there are a lot of people I know who just take for granted. I remember, uh, you know, I, I helped organize Amnesty International in the United States and the woman that Joan Baez and I did this with, both her parents uh, were medical doctors and were killed for helping Jews across the border to Switzerland from Northern Italy. And she was in prison um, and tortured and eventually got out. So years later in the US, we put this together. And she told me in 73, she said to Tonka, there probably, there may come a day when we are in the United States are on the other end of this. I mean, those of us in Italy, and I know people she said in Germany who never thought we would ever get to this place of dictatorship because we're educated or whatever the excuse was, it can happen anywhere. It can happen here. And we will be at the mercy of people around the world, you know, locally, but also around the world uh, to be there for us. So we're also helping ourselves as we do this over the decades. The time may come and here we are. So right, uh, we we uh... need to communicate really clearly what's happening and that none of what any of us care about is really possible, like having this Zoom meeting, like having a conversation and not being Tatanka, taken off. What was make- the juxtaposition with Les Wexner, president of L Brands in Ohio, and the airports in South and Rickenbacker, Spook Air, they were delivering arms to the Iranians with Israeli plane. Okay. There were 20 okay. businessmen, Jewish businessmen, that okay. were directing D.C. how to treat Israel. And this is still going on. You know, yeah, it's I mean, like Netanyahu 
it's just out of control. And what's everybody doing? Nothing. Yeah. So I'm glad we're supporting Ray and Andrea. They're doing amazing work. Yes, they are. And we're going to continue to support it. We're going to want to try and um, uh, uh, codify and use what they've said. Uh, uh, Steve, if I can have a transcript, that would be great. We're nearing the top of the hour. I do want to uh, deconvene at, at uh, 7 Eastern, 5 Pacific tonight on time. We will be next week gathering again, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Day. We hopefully have Joel Siegel on, who was uh, 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 a president at the creation uh, in, in the Congress uh, at Martin Luther King Day. I know a number of us, uh, Alyssa Matros is with us, Steve Spitz, uh, um, uh, Nancy from the University of Michigan, who have to go watch the uh, the final game here in, in a little bit. Um, uh, Hetty Tripp, it's good to see you. We do have, we have, Hetty has secured a, a, a promise uh, to join with us on January 29th. We'll have Keith Ellison with us again, which is fantastic. Um, um, a, a great, he's a great, a great actor. It's a great man, but this is our game plan. Now going forward, we had 50 people, uh, nobody left for over an hour and a half. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, in the age of social media. So uh, we also want to send our wishes, best wishes to Camilla Reese, a great supporter um, uh, who's in the hospital tonight. And we, we're wishing her the best. I will uh, call her later. Does anyone else want to jump in very quickly? Uh, Lynn Cherry, it's great to see you. Uh, we, I do want to have you do a, a, a presentation at a future call about the great K-pop tree and your uh, uh, Lynn is one of the best-selling children's authors in the history of the United States. Really great to have you on with us. And Joel, you'll be with us next week to talk about uh, the formation of Martin Luther King Day and to deal with also this the question of uh, uh, affordable housing as an issue, a viable issue in the 24 campaign. So we're at 3.57 uh, uh, Pacific time. Does anyone else want to chime in before we sign off? Okay, well, we still have 40. Yes, am I missing someone? Nancy. Nancy, yes. Nancy Namparco, please. In the, in the chat. Okay. Um, uh, Nancy also is a, uh, a doctor and um, uh, very well aware of the women's rights issue. Uh, I will say again that it was very moving to be in a meeting with Barbara Lee, uh, the uh, congresswoman from Oakland uh, running for U.S. Senate in California. And um, uh, uh, I, I do hope we, she can join us. Those of you who have people that you think might uh, be a good guests to join in this grassroots campaigning upcoming, uh, please bring them to us. Can, uh, I, uh, can I give you those numbers? The overall yeah. U.S. infant mortality is 5.9 per 1,000. And even wealthy white people have 3.5 per 1,000 lost infants but in canada the sweden the 10 other countries are only 2.4 to 4.5 and maternal mortality is even more shocking that we have 33 per 100,000 ladies die with a live infant and uh canada and norway have only 2 to 11 jesus that's mind-boggling well health care is enormous joel siegel is at president of the creation of the uh, ACA. So he'll be able to fill us in again more next week. Thank you for that, Nancy. It's always good to have medical people, actual medical people on the calls. Uh, Wendy, do you want to make a final comment before we go? 
Thank you. Um, and thanks for everybody who's participated and been supporting us. We love you. And it's just great to have everybody back. Um, I, I thought of something in our discussion tonight. It dawned on me that, you know, when when you see a crime being committed or somebody like being hurt or murdered or whatever, and you're there and you're able to help them and you don't, I believe that's considered some sort of crime or you're like accomplice or accessory Good to Samaritan. Yeah, thank you. And and so like right now that's what we're putting on doctors. That's what we're making them say like you need to not be a good Samaritan and not do your job, not obey your Hippocratic oath in order to fulfill our arbitrary demands. And I'm just seeing so many contradictions in the law and the way that the law is actually written in general, like just American legal system it's so like there's so much effort put in to things not contradicting <laughs> themselves if we're in order for it to function things like can't like that's what judges do is they they decide what these conflicts are and say okay we can't have this because this you, contradicts that so this one beats this and we're just water to people on the voting line i mean just simple right. stuff <laughs> okay but but so um so like right now, um, we're having situations where we're just piling on top of existing laws, new laws that contradict. And it again, it's just beyond the lack of democracy. It's still it always seems to stand back to the justice system. What um, Tatanka or somebody had brought up before about citizens arrests. It's like the judges who are enforcing these things, the judges that are um, interpreting these laws, they police themselves it's not just the supreme court that doesn't have a code of ethics it's that the judges themselves are um accountable to secret committees of other judges there's no way that you, you can go and, and arrest a judge and hold them accountable and well, hopefully so we'll find one one of these days yeah i mean it has to be like the whole system has to come down and come apart because i mean i just i feel like we have like a disease like there's some sort of cancer within our system that's like eating from the inside out and well, it really that, needs- was a, that was a line used by john dean and he was 100 percent right so wendy i hope we can use 24 the grassroots organizing to solve all that and um there is a song a bob dylan song about judges it's called seven curses Anybody want to hear a song about about judges? It's seven curses. Um, um, we're just past. Thank you for that, Wendy. Much appreciated. Uh, I want to give um, uh, Justin uh, one one minute, then Mike Hirsch, and then we're going to go. We'll give Mike the last word. Go ahead, Justin. A follow on to what Wendy's saying about you know what this road leads to and looks like. Uh, there's a parable from Poland called Forgotten Love about a doctor who actually got amnesia, remembered all his procedures, but didn't remember his license and, and who he was in the society. And he was charged with malpractice for saving people's lives because the uh, rules were so strict about paperwork and control over procedures and so on and so forth. Uh, so he, he was actually you know, prosecuted for the death penalty for saving lives. And so this is the kind of thing that we're facing in parts of this country. You can have a needs defense that will maybe protect the mother and the procedure, but then the doctor will lose their license. And so th- these are very nonsensical. Um, yeah. Solved. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for that. We'll see you next week. Uh, Mike Hurst, did you want to wrap up? Yeah, I just want to say really quickly, Wendy, you raised some really great ideas. We should probably delve into them. 
on entire Zooms coming up because they are so important. But I can tell from Slogo's face that he's thinking football, and I think that we should should close down before kickoff. Okay. Thank you, Mike. Um, um, uh, everybody on the call is duty-bound to root for the University of Michigan uh, to win this national championship so that Jim Harbaugh can go to the pros and hire Colin Kaepernick. That is my um, uh, uh, ulterior motive. Well, Myla, did you want to kick just, something Just in? one real quick thing. Uh, early in the call, uh, Daryl Gay contacted me in uh, as in a direct message in the chat because she is at a a, a noisy coffee shop and couldn't uh, ask herself, and she wanted guidance about um, contacting legislators about the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant in California, talking points and so forth. And so I just want to say um, that uh, Mothers for Peace is the best resource for. We're finding out about talking points to call your state legislators and to understand the issue of the Diablo Canyon nuclear power. No nukes. No nukes, everybody. Um, and we will be back for Martin Luther King Day. We'll have Joel Siegel with us. Hopefully Ray and Andrea will join us again. We are developing a game plan to save this democracy. And uh, we have no choice but to make it work. No nukes, everybody. And save our democracy. We'll see you next week. And honor Dr. King. No nukes and go blue. There you go. Thank you so much. No nukes and one step at a time.